Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. I am your American dental hygienist host, Melissa Obrotka. And I am your Australian host, Tabitha. So today you get just me and my girl. We're going to sit here and we're going to chat about some topics that we love to learn and dig on. So we're just going to record this and share with y'all. We're going to tackle a bit of a controversial topic. I don't know what's up with my voice, guys. It's getting weird, but it's also 5.50 in the morning. So my apologies. Um, We are going to tackle this kind of controversial topic about flossing or interdental brushing. We've had some Facebook like battles about yeah. this topic. <laughs> so we're going to present the science. We're going to make you kind of think like we always do. And we're going to have a fun discussion about it. Yeah. So I've been called an anti-flosser and I think they <laughs> met a derogative term. <laughs> Love but that. It makes me giggle because I think when we think of floss, it's like thinking about salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they go together, brush and floss, salt mm-hmm. and pepper, like those kind of things. And people just say brush and floss, brush and floss. How many sh- funny like cute shirts are they that like say like may the floss be with you or, you know, um, I even look at Instagram handles and half of them have who are dental hygienists have floss written in, in it. Yeah. And then there's all funny memes and there's the advertising, there's the T-shirts, there's the tote bags, and it's always about flossing. And so you just push this message of flossing like it is the be-all and end-all of dentistry. And I actually think we need to rethink it because is it the gold standard? Is it the best thing for our patients? Do you even do it yourself? And do you know what I mean? And like, you know, thinking about evidence-based dentistry, And individualized care is a really big thing as well. So I think that we really need to think about all of those things. And, yes, flossing has created a fantastic group of memes for us, but is it something that we want to be pushing and think something that we think of as our first thing to recommend to our patients every time? Absolutely. And something that we don't always consider is how technique-sensitive flossing Mm -hmm. truly is. And, you know patients don't, they're not great at things that we instruct them. I mean, how many times do you give OHI instructions with brushing and you feel like I've just said to you the angle I want you to hit, I've just demonstrated it to you. And then you give the brush off to them and they're like brushing like totally opposite of what you just showed them. So, I mean, (laughs) they're not always great at reproducing what we're trying to demonstrate or show them how to do. So I think that that's one of the limitations with floss, especially as we get more posterior, that gets harder for them. So it's, it's, there's a lot of things that we have to consider. And when it comes to um, my personalized oral hygiene instructions, I'm trying to think about a couple of things. How, number one, how's this going to fit in my patient's life? Because we know consistency is key. So like, what kind of program can I initiate for them that they're actually going to keep up with that's easy for them to do and they can keep on doing it over and over again? And, you know, so it might not be, you know, a traditional piece of floss wrapped around their fingers. That might not be it for them. And then it also depends on what they're presenting with. And this is where your assessments are so essential because floss works for patients with one, two, and three millimeter readings. Yeah. When we get beyond that, it loses its efficiency. So we have to be critical thinkers in that too. And like you said, follow the evidence. And what I think um, it's easy to assume is all of us that have graduated dental skill, school, we actually have quite good hand-eye coordination. Yes. Now, all right, don't get me maybe out on the sports field, but like, you know, <laughs> I can actually catch something when you throw it to me though. Um, <laughs> we can't do this job. We can't wear loops and, and use our probes and scale teeth without a form of pretty good hand-eye coordination. Absolutely. So it's really easy for us to make assumptions that people are as technically skilled as us. So when we're flossing eight, ten patients a day because we're checking for 
calculus and it's second nature to us and it's super easy and we've got the patient laying back with the mouth open and we're looking in everything's easy isn't it but with right. those, that patient isn't laying back it's not somebody else doing it to them and secondly their hand eye coordination might be quite poor I had a patient the other day that couldn't even use an interdental brush he kept missing his mouth and nearly going up his nose and I was oh. like all right we're gonna have to work on something else and, and because he just had horrific hand-eye coordination. And if you don't get patients to actually show you if they can do things in the chair that you've shown them, you won't find that out. And that's another really important thing is don't just show the patient, have the patient do it, or you won't know. You, you exactly. don't know what's happening. And then sometimes, like you said, Melissa, they start brushing and you're like, what were you doing? <laughs> what did I just say? Did I not communicate clearly? I am confused. <laughs> So going back to what you're talking about with spaces, I think that's a really important thing is, you know, we understand about measuring um, periodontal pockets, but also about measuring embrasure spaces and having a look as well. So we know a class one embrasure space that's quite small, that's filled with the tissue. And, you know, we've got healthy tissue as well. Flossing with a patient that can physically do it can work most definitely but they have to have good technique, the want, <laughs> like the ability, and already be healthy. So if someone's already healthy and they're doing it fine, don't, it's not broken, don't change it. Yeah. But the reality is most patients in our chair that are coming, especially for me because I'm working in specialist perio practice, None of them have a class one embrasure. That's not something that I see ever. I've <laughs> um, <laughs> already missed that boat. And there is no evidence to support its use, anything, only against it in those class two, class three embrasures where the space is too big, even with a skilled patient to make that work. So that's something, learn your embrasures, learn your class one, learn your class two, learn your class three embrasures, understand them so that when you're making that critical assessment, you actually know why. What would I recommend here? What's appropriate to that patient? And you know, why do we care? We care because that's where the biofilm accumulates. Absolutely. And it's all about the biofilm. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And that's what's really important is, you know, how about there was a great study the other day, actually, Melissa sent it to me. Um, sorry, I'm flipping a mozzie away from my face. <laughs> Melissa sent me a great study. Wait a second. Wait a second. What is a mozzie? I, I want us what? American people to know. A mosquito? Oh, oh my gosh, I'm going to call them Aussies from now on. That's adorable. <laughs> I love it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that we were the only person that called them that. I mean, maybe people in America do, but I just call them mosquitoes or a little yeah. pain in the ass bleep explicit. Um, well, I'm going to have to teach you something about Australians. We can't use the full name for anything. We must abbreviate every word in the English language. So <laughs> we know that they're mosquitoes, but we call them mozzies because we have I, to abbreviate everything. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay, carry on. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, Melissa sent me a great study on the cost of um, periodontal disease in caries. Yeah. And looking at it, that study looked at not just the financial cost of the patient paying, obviously that was huge and it was in US billions, by the way, like that it came to. Yeah, but the cost of missed work, the cost of um, maybe having impaired speech or not being smiling, the psychological costs, and that's what we have to think about when we think of dental disease. It's not just the money, it's what this does to this patient's mental health and then also how that maybe affects their overall health and then the flow-on costs of that by their diabetes not being controlled or increasing their risk for stroke. So we care about this because there's a financial and a health cost when we don't manage biofilm. And as dental um, professionals and especially as hygienists, we play such a crucial role in actually making a difference in not just the patient's mouth when they leave the practice but their overall health. Absolutely. And that's the thing, like, I, I, I just see a lot of, um, you know, when I get on social media, and I have to 
manage myself with that because sometimes it's hard. But when when you get into some of these groups and you try to enlighten and like share a message that is a little bit out of the box for the you know the majority of our profession, um, it's just there's a lot of pushback on on thinking that comprehensively and how much what we do or what we don't do. Uh, affects our patients. Tracy said that in our last interview, Tracy Baker, if you guys didn't listen to it, please go back to the previous episode and check it out. It was awesome. Um, But you know, that's, that's really huge. What we don't do, I think has a bigger impact on our patients and having these conversations about OHI are so much more important. And I know I might get flack for saying this, but I'd rather leave a piece of calculus behind and show a patient better (coughs) home care so that they can be doing that day to day And I'll get that piece of calculus next time I see them. I feel like that OHI is more important than leaving one little flick of calculus behind. Hallelujah. (laughs) Because you and I say this all the time. You can be the most skilled professional in the world. You can be the best dental hygienist out there. But if you don't make the change on what the patient does at home, it doesn't matter what you did. That was a one visit, maybe every six months, every three months. But unfortunately... It, may, it matters more about what the patient does. We can't make up for what if the patient doesn't do it. The patient needs to pull their weight. And the way I say it to patients all the time, I'm quite cheeky with patients, as you guys know from all the podcasts. But <laughs> I often say, we all know I'd love to be the star of the show. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd love to say that we got better because it was me, but actually it's you. And only you can do the work. If I just do the work, we take one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. I I can get you to health, but you've got to maintain it. So, you know, when I'm seeing a patient two to three monthly, we can get fantastic results because we know I'm disrupting that biofilm and intervening at a critical time where even if they're slacking off at home, I can actually still get repair. But then as soon as you start stretching those appointments out, they relapse because we haven't fixed up the home care. So you won't get long-term results without the patient getting in. So when they get that three-month result, I can cheer and go, yeah, I was a big part in that. Right. They, should, they shouldn't they should be on three-month recalls for the rest of their life. Their aim is to, I always say we've got a weird um, job objective as dental hygienists. It's to make ourselves redundant. Yeah. It's never going to happen. Don't worry, anyone. <laughs> No, no. And I like to put like, I take I do the takeaway with them often too. Like if they're kind of hemming and hawing about what I want them to do at home, and they're giving me that pushback. Be like, listen, if you can't find a way to fit this into your life, this is what's going to get you healthy, get you out of get you out of active disease and into remission. That's the goal here. If you are going to tell me, you know what, Melissa, there's no way I'm going to do any of this. Come here every two months, let me handle it for you. Let's do that trade-off. If that's how you want, you know, if you know you and it's just not going to happen, this is my alternative to help you. I said or like twin. (laughs) What was that? I say the exact same thing, twin. (laughs) No, we are. It's like ridiculous. We share a brain from across across the friggin' universe. Um, (laughs) So it's like you know, and I think a lot of the frustration we have as dental hygienists really we have to look in the mirror and own it because we don't explain things properly to patients. We assume they know and we assume they understand and they don't. And we opt them out of a lot of things because we don't take the time to have these conversations. And listen, I am in the trenches with you. I understand time is a hot commodity for us, but we have to kind of sit back and reassess the time we have negotiated with our practice to allow us to provide care because it's your license and you should negotiate that with them and what we can accomplish in that time frame. So OHI to me has to be in the beginning of the appointment. It has to be front loaded because people need to see what's going on in their mouths before we debride it and remove it. Otherwise, they're not going to get it. They're not going to make the connection. So when we disclose our biofilm and then go into our oral hygiene instruction and motivation, that's going to be more impactful than throwing the goodie bag at them as they walk out the door and say, don't forget to brush and floss like a little parrot squawking at them. So like it starts with us. We need to kind of look critically at what we're doing. Is it working? And then make adjustments and, and, you know, if you're, if you think you need to sit down and have a conversation with doc and your admin team, 
and you're trying to provide better care and you're getting pushback from them on that, like that's kind of crazy. Yeah. So I think, I think we need to like take the power back. We've given it away, take it back. And it starts with something so silly as oral hygiene instruction, because <laughs> we don't get to do it. And we get frustrated because of that. I actually think though, um, uh, I'll a hundred percent admit this. Uh, when I first graduated, I got really ruled by the clock. Yes. Okay. So I was like watching that clock all the time, feeling um, really overwhelmed by, you know, how I have to get this done and I've got to make production and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I became calculus obsessed. Yes. Same. Uh, I uh, definitely did that. And I lost sight of uh, um, oral hygiene instructions. And I unfortunately have to admit that I wasn't doing them enough, I wasn't doing them properly, I was waiting to the end of the appointment and if I ran out, it just didn't happen. I gave them really quickly on a model and I really didn't um, really didn't give it what I should. So when I started changing the way that I worked and actually making oral hygiene instructions the priority of my appointment, and I was really lucky, I went to a CPD course where I was really inspired by the dental hygienist who kind of said to me, come on, like, what are you guys doing? This is the most important. And I went back and I was like, you know what? What am I doing? And it changed my relationship with dental. I was actually thinking about leaving. I was checking out all my plan Bs. I was thinking, how am I going to get out of the op? What's going to be my plan to get out? And that's how I was working. And I stumbled across this CPD course and I went to it. And I found that I got my passion back. That's how I started loving dental again, was actually realizing that when I gave good, enthusiastic oral hygiene instructions, the patients connected with me. The relationships improved. The oral hygiene improved. The outcomes improved. My, I can go, look, yay, another great result. Guess what? Half the time it's the patient, but I'll take the win. (laughs) You don't have to work as hard either. Yeah. But I started enjoying going to work more. Exactly. It really changed it for me. Exactly. It's hashtag Tabitha got her bojo back. (laughs) (laughs) It is. You know what? We take so much responsibility for so many things that we shouldn't. And, And I agree with you. I did all the same things with the clock. You know, I was just so worried about staying on time. And especially as a baby hygienist, you're just like, oh my gosh, they gave me a job and I don't know what I'm doing. So I have to do everything they say. And depending on the type of practice you're in and the mentorship that you get if by another hygienist or by the dentist or whatever, that could really lay a foundation for you in your career that can set these mindsets that could either be really awesome or really negative. Yeah. So it's not easy. I'm not going to sit here and say it's easy. And the only reason we sit here and, and share these things is because we've pretty much made every mistake you can make. And I'm sure there'll be more coming down the pike. But that's how you learn and that's how you grow. And I think that the biggest thing is that you are, you have a responsibility when you take an oath to take care of other human beings that when you know better, you need to do better. Yeah, 100%. And I think that oral hygiene instructions is the core of what we learn. We're preventative health practitioners. So whenever we treat a patient, we're intervening with treatment. Yeah. And, and you know, this really is the core of what we came to be and to do. And so I think it's really important that we keep that there and we keep that at the centre of everything that we do because that's how we, we make changes and really, you know, make sure that we can make that change for our patients. And that's what ho- hopefully will bring you the joy in the end. Yeah. Yeah. We are the prevention specialists in disease, oral disease management. Yeah. Over a dentist. That's my wheelhouse, not yours. Yours is cutting and restoring teeth, restoring function. Mine is preventing disease. I tell patients all the time, my job is to keep you out of his chair yeah. or her chair. <laughs> exactly. Are you work with me? Are you going to help me? Or what are you going to do? Like, yes. let's, let's work together. If you and I work together, we can make this happen. I'm like, it's kind of funny they even want me here because my job is to prevent them from doing work. Yeah, but, exactly. We're turning this into like a motivational speech. Let's get more into the like the nitty gritty with interdental cleaning and flossing. One of the things you have to think about though, as a dental hygienist, and any 
oral health professional, oral health therapist, dentist, and specialist is bias. Yes. And we all have bias in our life. So I'm not going to say that I don't have bias either. There's definitely things that I do in my life where, you know, the bias comes in, um, especially when it comes to your kids. And then she curses curses when her bias is showing, but so do I. (laughs) What we have to think about is, are we giving bias to a product? So that goes back to your salt and pepper, brush and floss. Yeah. Are you biased because of that? Because you are, that's what you just learned to begin with, or that's what you see all the time. Why are you recommending a product? Are you recommending a product because they've advertised to you really well? Are you recommending a product because you've got a deal to advertise them on Facebook and you get money from it? Do you, are you organizing the product? Are you recommending the product? Because that's what you like. Do you know what I mean? So it, it has to not be about those things. And sometimes I have to talk about products with patients that I don't like. But that patient likes it. That patient wants to use it. So I actually need to give that patient the ability to use something that they want to use. So for me, I have a preferred electric toothbrush. Let's give that an example. But if a patient walks in with the opposite toothbrush of what I feel, I'm not going to say to them, did you know the Cochrane Review recommends this one when they've just spent $300 on a different one? I'm going to work with them with how it works because right. what what's the point in that situation, do you know what I mean, in pushing my bias when they've just spent $350 on a different type of electric toothbrush and they're excited to use it? That's Let's- such a great point. Yeah, I love that point because it's like if if they're asking you, hey, I want to invest in one, what do you recommend? That's a different conversation. But I love that you're making this raising awareness on that because I think sometimes we argue with them over those things instead of just saying, how do I make this work for you because you've already invested in it. Yeah. And that like having that conversation being, oh, really? I didn't like that one. I really wish you bought this one, which I got to tell you, I've done that in my professional career as well. You know, it's it's a now you're making it about you and not about them. Yeah. So, and it has to be about them. They're there. You're, they're there for you to give them a service. And part of your service is your intellectual property and sharing your knowledge on oral hygiene, wellness and instruction and prevention of disease. So it's like one part, your skill and another part, it's what, you know, and that's really where you are responsible as the healthcare professional to make sure that you continue to learn and which we know our disruptors are because you're here listening to us. So <laughs> yay, and thank you. Um, but like continue to learn. And and I like to say, I want to have a lot of oral hygiene products in my mental toolbox because everybody's different and everybody's going to come with something different, you yeah. know? So I want to be able to provide the proper education to meet their needs. And I think that that's like, you have to understand that the patient has to have exactly like you said, has to fit into their life. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to think about. Not just does it fit into our life, not just does it fit into what we think is the best, but can the patient afford the $400 toothbrush that you're recommending? Right. Some of it's like the best one, but can they actually afford it or can they tolerate it? You know, I've had patients that can't tolerate electric toothbrushes because it makes them gag and there's a psychological barrier there. Work right. with manual toothbrush. They can get a good result. And a perio friend of mine from Adelaide, his name's uh, Leo, and he always says the best toothbrush is the one in your hand. Yeah, I love that. Like a $400 electric toothbrush does not work in the box. No. I, oh my gosh. I say that too. We're like, hey, we talked last time about considering using an oral irrigator. Did you end up picking it up? Have you been using it? Tell me yeah. about what's going on. And they're like, oh yeah, I bought it, but I haven't taken it out of the box yet. And I'm like, well, it is 0% effective in the box. So <laughs> what do you think? Do you think maybe we'll start working with it? Like, you know, I, I, like you said, being about being cheeky, you have to be fun with them because they, they have this imagery of you brush and flush our teeth. I'm going to get yelled at. Like she's going to yell at me or he's going to yell at me because I didn't do what I need to do. How many times do they sit in your chair and they're like, they give you the disclaimer. Listen, I wasn't that good this time. I know you told me I needed to floss more and I haven't done it. So, you know, I had a lot going on in life and they're like pre-warming you for the excuses about finding the, the poo storm that you're about to find in their mouth. So, you know, it's, 
it's about just really making it work. It, like it has to fit in their life. It really does. So like if if I'm asking a patient to pick up a water pick for the first time, I'm going to say, let's start small. If yeah. you can commit to me doing this three days a week right now, I will be the happiest hygienist. And once you feel like you're pretty comfortable doing that, then try to push yourself to four. By the time I see you again, I would love you to be consistently doing this three to four days a week. Let's set that goal. Let's start small. And that creates a new habit loop for them. And when they get into that habit loop, then it's just, it, they go on autopilot. And that's our end game goal. Our end game goal is that they, it's just what they do every day. Yeah. And I think that that's what's really important is, is that we've got to think about all of those things. So in your head, think about why am I recommending this product? What's needed? So what's the problem? What's the evidence? What's the patient's ability? What's the patient's wants? Mm -hmm. And that all has to go in together. So actually recommending something to clean interdentally isn't as easy as brush and floss. <laughs> right. It actually is a lot more complex because Absolutely. you have to think about all of those things. Now, a patient may be resistant. I've had this in perio practice a lot of times. They're resistant from changing from the floss to the brush because I want them to use two brushes and the floss is quick because they're not doing it properly. <laughs> right. So really right. Flick it in and flick it out. Right. They've always done and this is something new and oh, oh, oh. So that's when it goes back to the disclosing for me. I disclose their mouth. I show them my excellent flossing technique and how little but how little of it's removed. And then I show them how easy it is to put the brush in and how much of that bacteria is removed. And it goes back to what you were saying, Melissa, about the why. Yeah. Taking the time to explain the why. They don't know the why. <laughs> no. And you don't want to make a change if you don't know the why. And they've just been told their whole lives, brush and floss, brush and floss, brush and floss, brush and floss, but, you know, to prevent cavities. Yeah. It's more than preventing cavities. We know that, but they don't know that. And when we, take, when we really dig into taking it a step further and dig into their medical history and look at the potential of like genetic predispositions for things like Alzheimer's, uh, cardiovascular disease, stroke, all of that stuff. If there's a family connection with that, and we know that PG is one of those um, instigators of periodontal disease, and it's linked to so many of those different uh, non-communicable disease states that our patients can present with us. It's so much bigger than that. That's risk prevention, right? That's, that's a way, if we can reduce the amount of these periodontal pathogens that are going into their bloodstream, we're reducing those genetic risk factors that they have a predisposition for. So this is so much bigger than cleaning teeth. Yeah. And that's like, that's where my and Tabitha and so many of our colleagues passion lies is that we have the ability to do so much more than flick and polish. Yeah, a hundred percent. And we say it all the time and it sounds so corny, but you can save lives. You change Literally. Lives, you save lives. So don't underestimate the power of what you do in that room and how important you are. And, you know, especially last year and even this year as we go back into lockdown and some dental gets shut down again in Australia, people really take it personally when they're told they're not part of the essential workers that are staying open. You are essential. You are important to people's lives. We are an important aspect of health. And I think that no matter if we temporarily have to shut and open back in, they're thinking, they're looking at essential as something different in that stage. So don't think that you're not essential. I think that's a really important message that I want to give to people. You are, and dental is an essential part of health. And for yeah. some reason, through insurance and through other issues, we've become luxury health, but we shouldn't be luxury health. We are essential. Science it, is showing otherwise. You know, it's unfortunate that it is a luxury for so many people to actually receive dental, but it shouldn't be that way. I, you know, and it's something that we've really talked about in so many episodes about how we'd like to increase access to care. Yeah. And we all have to work on that together to increase that access to care, you know, and especially imagine if all of our patients just at one point in their life just got taught how to brush their pro teeth properly and how to clean in between them properly how amazing the health outcomes would be just with that one thing. It's insane. It would be such a huge change, 
you know, that's the thing. Like we have such, it's, it's so impactful. Yeah. And it's not being advertised as such. No, it's not, unfortunately. But we'll go back to interdental brushing again because, you know, Melissa and I love to get sidetracked. <laughs> We've gotten off topic yet again. But when we <laughs> Thanks for sticking it out with us. <laughs> if you look at the Cochrane database of um, systematic review uh, reviews, recently summarised the research on interdental biofilm control devices for self-care that impact periodontal disease and caries. The authors described most evidence as low to very low uncertainty and cautioned that there were weaknesses in most studies, such as small populations or low levels of disease at baseline that make applying these findings to all populations difficult. Keeping these limitations in mind, the key findings included floss combined with toothbrushing may reduce gingivitis in the short term, 30 days and medium term. A rubber cup or elastomer tip may reduce plaque but not gingivitis in the short term. An interdental brush may reduce gingivitis and plaque in the short term, and an interdental brush may be better at reducing gingivitis than flossing in the short term and medium term. Water flossers may reduce gingivitis and may be better than flossing for reducing gingivitis in the short term, and wooden, wooden cleaning sticks may be better than toothbrushing for reducing gingivitis in the medium term. Interesting findings from that That one. is interesting. I didn't know that about the wood sticks. They've yeah. kind of become taboo. Like I remember learning about them in school back in the late 90s. <laughs> and um, <laughs> like there was, I remember our professors talking about how like that they're kind of taboo now because they would splinter while people yeah. were using them. So, you know, it's not really something that I see in our aisles here in America, at least in my corner of the country, um, for patients to even purchase. But that's interesting that it has, like, the studied ability is actually better. Yeah, it's definitely not something I recommend. They're not something that I would be handing out. I definitely know there's brands that make them and you can buy them. But, again, it comes down to if it's the only thing your patient's going to use, better than nothing. Right, right. And that's the that's the piece that I really want people to take away from this episode is that something is better than nothing. And we have to get out of this like, hygiene, perfect ideal, we really have to meet them where they are. Um, so some of the data on wood sticks, it says there is limited data from which to draw conclusions about gingival benefits with the use of wooden sticks. A systematic review concluded that while wooden sticks do not necessarily demonstrate visible biofilm removal, improvement, improvements were documented, oh, I can't speak today, I'm sorry, in gingival health. One explanation may be that with sufficient interdental space, a wooden stick can adequately disturb subgingival biofilm by displacing soft tissue. This subgingival area would not be visible with a disclosing solution and often used in research studies. Um, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, we think about toothpicks and things like that. If the patients are using it, it's at least a good sign that they're willing to do something interproximally. And then we can use those tools like the biofilm disclosing and the education to explain why they might change that to something a little bit better. And then we can think about things like water irrigators. I think they get a bit of a bad rap. What do you think? I think they do get a bad rap. And, um, you know, that comes with like industry opinion. Um, you know, for a while, people, water picks were widely accepted. And then people, all of a sudden, a lot of uh, dental professionals were like, no, they're not good. You're going to um, introduce bacteria deeper down into the pocket. Um, that you could damage your gum tissue. There was a lot of negatives associated with them. Um, I personally think, again, it's it. you can't just tell a patient to use a water pick. You have to take the time to teach them the, te the technique, the angulation of the tip. It's all about the tell, show, do, and make sure that they're competent in doing the what you've instructed them to do. Um, I really love water picks, especially for my periodontal patients, because, again, we have to think, what do you achieve with brushing and flossing? And is that patient healthy? Is that patient in a state of disease? Is that disease in remission, but we've had destruction from the disease? What are those interdental spaces like? What is um, their, you know, genetic predisposition? Do they build up a lot of bacteria? Do, you know, so there's so many factors involved. I do, anybody who I do any non-surgical periodontal therapy on, my implant patients, part of their maintenance program is going to be a water pick. And uh -huh. I, I just need to make sure I take the time to teach them how to properly use them. And that's that's it. And so water picks, I think an interdental brush is going to do more than a water pick by itself. But 
if the patient doesn't have the manual dexterity to use an interdental brush, then a water pick is way better than nothing. And I also think that a water irrigator, right. so there's lots of different brands, sorry. So, um, you know, look at the brands and there's different ones. So I think you need to have a constant flow of water to be matching the studies that show that we get benefits. So ones that are pushing a lot of air. Right, that's water, one of the things. That's not a water irrigator. And that's and so we're talking yeah. about water irrigators here. And that's when you're going to see a big difference. So I think a water irrigator is great for patients with um, poor manual dexterity. Uh, so, you know, they just physically can't use an interdental yeah. brush. Great there. I think, again, like you said, really good in inflamed periodontal disease. And there's research that shows with the water irrigator as well is that it can actually reach up to six millimetres subgingivally. And so there, if you've got those lots of pockets, especially around an implant, you can be flushing that out as well. And then especially anyone with bridges or complex hybrid implant bridges, all on fours, things like that, the water irrigator is a must for cleaning in underneath them on a daily basis. So where a lot of people, um, I think, you know, obviously a water irrigator in combination with an interdental brush is awesome if the patient can do that. But where they're seeing a lot of benefits from water irrigators, and there's some studies going on about this at the moment, is they're actually seeing inflammation levels drop more with water irrigators from that lavaging aspect at home and from lavaging that gingiva and helping the inflammation reduce. Now, it doesn't remove mature biofilm very well. It's better on new biofilm, but it will still help lavage those areas. So the thing is, is, you know, if the patient uses it once every two months, they're not going to get great results but they're not going to get great results from an interdental brush once every two months either. <laughs> it's about using it, you know, regularly and flushing that out. But the studies showed that um, water flosses document improved clinical signs of gingivitis. Corresponding biofilm remover is not strongly de demonstrated, but you're getting that gingival inflammation. So it is a thing that we can use in the practice that really can help our patients. And so the possible explanation of why we don't see as much biofilm removed, but we see the inflammation improve more, is that the water under pressure can disrupt the alter pathogenic bacteria, rendering it less pathogenic, yet not visibly change the biofilm amounts when viewed with a disclosing solution. So there are benefits to using it. And I actually think we're going to see more research coming out about interdental about water irrigators and the benefits of reducing inflammation levels and disrupting that. So I think watch this space. Don't write them off. There's a really good place for them in the dental practice, yeah. and I recommend them a lot. And I actually use one myself because I like I like it. Like I like the feeling after a water irrigator. Yeah, it feels like you just had a professional biofilm removal appointment. Yeah. Notice what I didn't call the appointment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other thing, too, the other, the other piece of that too is, um, again, going back to your instructions and reading the studies and understanding the amount of time the water has to be flushing between the uh, tooth and the tissue or the tooth, the implant and the tissue. Because if they're just zipping through and just tracing the gum line, that's not enough time for the water to expose the to the bacteria to lice the cell wall to actually destroy it. So you have to teach them to slow it down when they're using it. And um, when when I explain why I want them to use it, you know, after they have been through a biofilm management appointment and they feel the difference in the thoroughness in that technique and approach, uh, I teach them that using the water pick is going to help them be like this at home and achieve a better result for them long term at home. But it really does take time to be able to do that. And I, and I tell them the truth. Listen, when you first start using this, this is going to be a pain. But you just have to be patient with yourself and be consistent. Find a time every day that, or like I said in the beginning, maybe just three days a week. But find a time that you can commit to doing it every, you know, whenever you've made that interval commitment and that you're consistent with it. It's the consistency that makes a difference. And, um, you know, I, I personally have been recommending an oral irrigator that alters the um, molecule of the water. It actually changes the polarity of the water to help repel bacteria from adhesion subgingively. Um, so, and, and the nice thing um, that I explain to my patients too, you know, I don't know if it lasts 24 hours, but I tell them when they say, does it last, how long does it last? I said about 24 hours. So it's like trying to motivate them to do it on a daily basis. Okay. 
But the other piece of it that I, I explain to patients, like I tell them about anaerobic bacteria and how they're more aggressive to your um, dental health and also your systemic health. And they like to live in those deeper areas where we measured fours or fives or sixes mm. and they don't like oxygen. So if you're using your water pick on a regular basis and you're delivering oxygen between the tooth and the uh, gum tissue and you're reaching further down than your brush and floss can, you're now creating an environment where those uh, pathogenic bacteria can't survive. So the more you do that, the better control you have over that bacteria. So we we do have to kind of dig into the science a little bit, but explain it in a way that they can understand. And again, when they know the why behind it, then they're more likely to actually commit to these behavior modifications that we're asking them to do. And 100%, we know that that's one of the reasons why ultrasonics work. It's not just the removal of calculus. It's actually the air bubbles right. created in there that actually helps oh, just parakeets. And that lavage that actually helps stopping that biofilm from, um, you know, it breaks it up and helps that break down. And the water um, irrigators can do the same thing. And so that's why they can be quite beneficial in that aspect as well. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of bias from clinicians with them in a way as well. And we have to be a little bit more open and reading the research and seeing how you can implement this into the practice. We don't have the water irrigator that you were talking about. We don't have as many brands in Australia. I know the one because I've seen it, but have a, you know, read the research, have a look, have a look into it, get the rep to come out and do a lunch and learn with you or something like that and, and have a, and have a bit more of a look at it. But I definitely think they're quite beneficial and I've seen great results when we've introduced them into my implant patients. A hundred percent. It's so essential. And especially like you were mentioning before in those advanced implant cases and in some situations too, with implants the you know, depending on the, 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 where the implant fixture was placed, the abutment depth, the tissue tunnel, like there's no way on some of these implants that floss, floss, no way. Yeah. And there's no way a brush is going to reach bases. So, you know, you have to be able to have this, this like itinerary in your, your mental toolbox to be able to provide to patients when they're presenting with these things that, you know, our traditional approaches are not going to work. No salt and pepper for those patients. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're going to finally talk about floss. (laughs) So floss was invented in um, 1815 and it was a silk thread when it started so um and you know i'd like why we kind of are like trash talking floss a little bit at them today um i'd actually like to say to that person that invented it well that was a person that was thinking outside the box how amazing what a revolutionary yeah thing that's invented so at the time that was the best thing out there. It was amazing. It was an amazing step towards preventative dentistry. So I don't want anyone to think we're undermining that aspect of it because that, you know, it's just we've gone past it. It's a bit like the first person that invented the pedal drill. Amazing technology at its time. Yeah. Not so much now. <laughs> right. And floss is the same. Right. We know we know so much more. Yeah, we know so much more about bacteria and um, dysbiosis and and how strong biofilm, especially the pathogens are. So when we think about those things, and we're asking this little piece of string to disrupt this very mature pathogenic biofilm community in an area where it can't even reach, like when we're we're beyond, you know, four millimeters, floss isn't going to reach that. So like, we just need to objectively think, critically think and and make decisions based on science. Yeah. So it started being sold commercially in the 1940s um, when Johnson & Johnson bought it out as a nylon thread. So, again, another massive advancement in preventative dentistry. But what we know is large-scale studies have failed to show the efficacy of flossing of re- for reducing inflammation or even for biofilm control. So when we start calling it the standard, that it's actually not the gold standard. It never has been. Yes, it was at one time the only option, so fantastic, but it's never been shown to be this brilliant piece of equipment. It doesn't work that well in the majority of cases. And it's like what Melissa was saying, coming back to technique and can patients actually do it? Do they want to do it? And can they get the results with it? So if they're in a healthy mouth, yes, it's it's great in a healthy mouth, a class one embrasure. But there's no evidence to show that it works in periodontal patients, especially. 
Right. And you remember back in 2016, there was this whole media push about is flossing really necessary? And it, it actually showed that there is no evidence to back yeah. it up. And that's what they were kind of like running off of. And I mean, all of us in dentistry were like, what are you talking about? Of course, flossing works and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I, I have to say that myself too. Like I was like so appalled that they would put that out. But I know so much more in 2021 than I did in 2016, especially about biofilm and all of that, that process. So remember that it's always a learning journey and, you know, try not to jump up on somebody really harsh yeah. when, when you have a difference of opinion. It's a, it's an opportunity to educate and maybe open their mind. Um, but yeah, there really is nothing to back this up. And it, you know, we, we are an evidence-based profession, right? Everything we do is supposed to be based on the science. So you know, we, we have to let go of some of these legacy thoughts and protocols because it's just what it's been done for so long. And so talking about floss, we know that it's very rarely performed correctly. And so some of the things that we actually see is floss damage. So who here, you know, when you're listening at home, think about it. How often have you seen clefts in gingiva from flossing? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Aggressive flossers. <laughs> I was reading a study the other day, and it was really interesting. It was a case study where a patient has actually, who was like an aggressive flosser, had actually flossed like dents into their teeth. I'll, I'll take some pictures out of the study and we'll put them on the Instagram page. Oh, my but goodness. But they had been flossing so aggressively and so often that they'd worn grooves in all of their teeth from the floss. In the enamel or in the dent? In both. Really? Yeah, I know. This person must have OCD or something. I was like, whoa. But we yeah, often yeah. see clefts, especially around implants. Yes. But yes. It's that gingiva is a lot more fragile. And when, especially if they do that 360 floss, you see Melissa's face. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, her body cried. <laughs> let me share my 360 floss story. There's mm. actually an article out with this image in it. Um, Siobhan Healy wrote an article, uh, top three reasons why you shouldn't floss implants. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, she got some massive flack for that. Like almost like hate mail and, and screaming matches on uh, social media. But um, she utilized one of my clinical images in it. And I got to tell you this too. I was in a course once and the speaker talked about 360 flossing and had my clinical image with no documentation up on the screen. I nearly fell off the chair. I was like, oh my gosh, that's my patient. It was really funny. I digress yet again in this episode. Um, anyway, so back to this patient, this is where my story comes in. I, you know, when I was early on in my implant maintenance um, education, I learned about 360 flossing and I was demonstrating that to all of my patients. And I was show showing them to do it with super floss because it was thicker and it would grab more biofilm. So that was the whole like thought process behind it. And this is great because this shows exactly the same thing, like follow the evidence and see what works and see what doesn't. So, um, I was showing pretty much all my patients this. I had a few that actually were telling me it was like really uncomfortable when they came back for their next recare appointment. I was like, well, this shouldn't hurt. So if it's hurting, please stop doing it. So this one patient comes in and he goes, yeah, something funny is like around my implant. It feels like it has a tail. And I was like, a tail? So I go <laughs> and I look in there and there's this giant piece of the fuzzy part of super floss just hanging out like a tail in his uh, sulcular area around his implant on the lingual. So that was the day that I stopped recommending 360 flossing. And this is why, because some of the studies that were I was aware of at the time were talking about uh, periimplantitis. And when they would flap these areas open to clean them out and surgically treat them, they were finding blue fibers and threads that were sitting around uh, the implant threads on, on the body of the implant. And they made the connection, it was happening over and over again, they made the connection that it was from that 360 flossing technique. So um, go check out that article, we'll put the link in the show yeah. notes for it. And you'll see that patient in that patient's picture in there. Um, but yeah, so that is why I from experience, you know, I tried to follow what the recommendation was. And there wasn't really science behind it. Because again, we don't have that science for implant dentistry, we have some but we still don't have that longitudinal, especially when it comes to maintenance, right? And I think what you have to think about, though, go back to embrasure spaces. Mm -hmm. Find an implant with a glass on embrasure space. It's pretty much impossible. Yeah, it, it's, it's not very often. 
think about implant embrasures, think about the emergence profile of implants. They're weird and wonderful. They're like upside down pyramids and houses and weird stuff because they've got to fill spaces that have sometimes opened up or, you know, you're trying to put a small implant. It's not the same root structure and then a big enough amount, especially when we're thinking about sixes there you definitely get a lot more of embrasure space when we're replacing oh so this sorry american <laughs> i'm like i just made a face in australia we call first adult molars sixes okay so that would be 3 14 19 and 30 for us there you go thank you whenever i go to a course in america and they start like saying numbers i'm always like what are they talking about looking because we number per quadrant so quadrant right. one quadrant two, quadrant three, and then give it a number. So six-year-old molars, we call sixes. <laughs> and then do everything difficult here. So, <laughs> And so when you're thinking about that first adult molar, thank you for picking up, Melissa. Everyone would be like, there's no molar on a six in America. <laughs> what are you talking about? Six is a canine for us. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're thinking about that first adult molar, that's a pretty big space that you've got to fill with prosthodontically on an implant. It doesn't have that same crown. So you get not a great emergence profile sometimes and a lot of area for biofilm to stick. So floss isn't going to cut it. You need that interdental brush in spaces like that. So it comes back to thinking about what fits the space. And the one place where I am less flexible with the patient, so, you know, a patient that wants to stuff around with flossets, I'll show them how they work. I'll show them why an interdental brush is better. But, you know, I'll try and persevere with them if they really, really like them. I don't with an implant. With an implant, I measure the space with an IAP probe, so the interproximal access probe, and I recommend the exact brush for that side, that implant, because this is where you can't stuff around. No. Because you really need to make sure that that space is being cleaned appropriately because we know mucositis is very easy to get, but implantitis is unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And once we get implantitis, there are things that we can throw at it, but pra- praying is one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's like the kitchen sink and a lot of Hail Marys. <laughs> yeah. So I am quite particular with my oral hygiene instructions around implants. I'm like, you've invested the money, you've got to invest the time, and this is exactly what you have to do. So yeah, I'm quite it- strict with that. Yeah. And that just kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier in the episode where we have to front load this education. Like one of the things that the uh, doctor I'm working with now, who I actually, I absolutely love that he says this is that patients have to earn their dentistry, especially when it comes to implant dentistry, because they need to be committed to their home care. They need to be committed to seeing us on a more frequent basis so we can manage this. They're not bionic. They don't get to have this, like, especially like all on four case, they don't get to do a full mouth all on four and say, peace out, I'm done. So like, we need to be an active part of that. And, and I'll make with some of the offices that I train, I'll make the suggestion that if you're like, if your patient's signing a consent form for implant dentistry, correct? And they're all like, yes, of course. Well, why are we not putting in there uh, the home care expectation? And the recare expectations, because in order to have long-term success, maintenance is a cornerstone in that. And and dentistry does a really bad job at realizing that when we do this huge surgical and then restorative component to this to restore function and aesthetics to these patients, they drop the ball when it comes to maintenance. Like that is, that's just as critical, if not the most critical piece. So the hygienist has such a huge role in that. We are the first responders to peri-implant uh, inflammation, mucositis, implantitis. We are the profession prevention specialists in that. And I know a lot of us don't know about it. And that's, that's just industry issues right now. But um, that's why myself, uh, Tabitha, Siobhan Healy, Miranda Beeson, Nicole Fortune, uh, Joe Grasmick, we've all bound together to uh, create this, this um, education, so that our profession has a better understanding of what to look for, how to look for it, and then what to, when to, you know, scream and yell and say, hey, there's a problem here. We need to yeah. jump on this. Peri-implant disease is twice as large and happens twice as fast as uh, periodontal disease because we have no PDL. And that's a key factor in that too. So, yeah. and when we think about sending an implant patient home with floss and they, there is no PDL and they don't know how to do the proper technique 
they might, like Tabitha was saying with the lacerations, they're probably going to do more damage than good. There's going to be more of an itrogenic side effect for them. So, you know, we really just have to be critical thinkers when it comes to this. And when you have, I'll always pull their um, PA up for them after the insertion, that PA that, that should be taken at insertion. And if it's not, yeah. please take it yourself. Um, but I'll pull that PA up and I'll show them the interdental space and the bone topography and how that's different, especially on a, on a six or our first molars. So <laughs> they have, look, I'm applying my new knowledge um, so that they have an understanding. I'm like, you could drive a truck through this floss, a little piece of string ain't going to cut it. And I know you and I have gotten flack for saying that before, because we talked about this on a previous episode, yeah. um, our urban legends of implant maintenance. So if you haven't heard that and you want a little more implant info, please go back and listen to that. It's one of our early episodes. Um, but yeah, we've caught a lot of flack for that. Um, but you, you just have to be a critical thinker and look, what, what can a string do in a giant class three embrasures, embrasure space versus an interdental yeah. brush that is fitted for that specific spot. And I love that. Um, I'm going to name drop a, a product right now, but Curaprox has that measurement tool. And that's something that I love because other companies don't have that. And when you use their product over and over again, you can kind of eye it up and be like, oh, I think that's a green. I think that's this. And the colors are coded to the brush size. But why why not have the precision and have the the tool to actually tell you exactly what it is? So I love that about uh, that product line. And another really cool thing that I think is really important to do too, one of my friends who is a specialist, she was saying when she's getting a crown made, she sends the interdental brush to the, pros to the, the prosthetic lab and said, make sure this fits perfectly. I love so that. Then, and like, you know, if we we're all thinking about long-term maintenance in every aspect of dentistry, we'd have really different outcomes. Yes. It's not sure. just about aesthetics. It has to be about aesthetics, function, and cleansability. Yes. So that we can have long-term success. Yeah, it really is. beautiful thing in the world placed, but if you can't clean it, it doesn't matter. It won't stay that way. No. And you know what? Sometimes like on Instagram, I'll see, cause I'll just follow certain hashtags and like other dental professionals, they'll put their cases up and they have this beautiful prosthetic that they've done with these fiery red gingivitis gums that are just like screaming or like they've invaded bio with. So there's just chronic inflammation everywhere. And I'm like, ah, oh. I'm going to get at that person and help them. <laughs> I digress again because we'll just bring up something. We might have to do a subject on this, but I don't know if this happens in America, but do you have like non-dental professionals whitening teeth in shopping centers? Yes, ma'am, we do. Um, we have the same problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> photos of calculus and whitening. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Instagram, I'm like, oh, you're burning my soul. <laughs> your calculus is a shade whiter now. Congratulations. It never reached your tooth structure. <laughs> It's that insane. will be another subject, but that that hurts my soul when I see those images. Sorry for digressing, oh everyone. Gosh, we do have to do another uh, episode on this because I have a story how I embarrassed my family at a um, event when they had a booth set up doing this. <laughs> my my husband was like, "I cannot believe you right now." <laughs> so, before you guys send me hate mail about being. <laughs> Okay, so I'm gonna have to like look before I get in my car every day. Like, is somebody's yeah. hitman coming? <laughs> and before a floss company comes and you know takes me out on my way to work, um, death by floss. Melissa's in my view here. We're not actually projecting a personal view on um, flossing and interdental brushing. I'd like to refer to the European Federation of Periodontology, who we know sets the standard for perio treatment and education around the world. And they actually recommend interdental brushes as the method of choice for interdental cleaning. And they said in their exact words, where spaces between the teeth allow their insertion without trauma, this should be the recommendation. And that's exactly what we've preached here tonight. So if you doubt us, I will put the link <laughs> to what their recommendations are. But this is the gold standard recommending the interdental brush. So that's really, really important. And before you say, I know the next thing you're going to say to Melissa and I is it won't fit. Well, looking at a cross-sectional study done in 2016 on interdental brushing on healthy adults, 2,048 embrasure spaces were checked. And interdental brushes fitted in 90.3% of them. Well, gee, those are some pretty good odds. Yeah. So I'll put that link in there as well for you. It'll fit more than it won't. 
Yes. And most of the time you're probably underestimating. That's what I figured out that I was doing when I started, before I started using the IAP probe. So sometimes when your patient comes back and they say, I've been using the interdental brush every day and you look and you think, where between your toes? Maybe they have, but you recommended the wrong size. Right, right. Because it really has to fill that entire space yeah. for it to be efficient. So again, you know, it's just thinking you got to take the the evidence, but how is it actually being applied, right? Yeah. So it's if it's not being applied properly, yeah, you're not going to get the results that the evidence states you will. So you have to do your due diligence to make sure that, you know, we're, we're trying to we know how patients are, we know how they don't listen. So we have to make it as user friendly for them as possible and really help them again, understand the why behind what we're asking them to do. A hundred percent. And so think about all of this knowledge we've thrown at you today. It's lots Mm -hmm. of stuff. You know, like we said, so rounding it up, yes, floss can work with a patient with good technique, the ability, the want, and an already healthy mouth. Yes. If there's gingivitis, if there's perio, or if there's spaces larger than a class one embrasure, it is not your go-to. Right. All right. And so we need to just stop. We need to stop thinking about it like salt and pepper. We need to think about our bias that we have. And if this episode made you feel really uncomfortable, good. That's really good. That's a good thing. It means that you're thinking. All right. And yeah. um, I've just got a bit uncomfortable with what I'm doing. But that doesn't matter if you go and have an independent research and and think about it. Do you know what I mean? Like think about it, assess it for yourself, read the links that we put in there. This is all backed up by scientific evidence that we're talking about today. We all recommended things before we knew that we should change. And don't quote Melissa and I in five years if we don't believe this anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. Our invented. <laughs> yeah. Our whole purpose is to disrupt the dental status quo. Like that is why we do this podcast and, um, you know, disrupting biofilm is something that is near and dear to my and Tabitha's heart. And, uh, we just want to share this with you guys because, you know, we've, we've been in the same place and, and I know some of the feedback we might get is, well, what do I say to patients when we've been suggesting flossing all along and now I'm changing? Cause you know, sometimes that's an issue too. We don't want to you know, look like we didn't know what we were talking about or what have you. So my suggestion for that is the newer science and the studies are showing us that this is more effective at removing the bacteria that is associated with gingivitis, periodontitis, and other systemic diseases. So yeah. that's that's a really easy way to introduce that. And if patients give you pushback, I always invite them to go to their friend, Mr. Google, and check it out for themselves. Yeah. No, and I just think that it's really important that you keep doing education. Trade is actually a really important thing. When we, you know, going to conferences and visiting trade is actually a really important aspect of our jobs. Yeah. Because it's where you discover new products and then you can go do the independent research. I definitely recommend independent research, but it's where you find out about new things. It's where you see things you're like, I've never seen this before. Oh, I've never seen this before because we're constantly evolving and changing and new technology is always coming out. And so, like I said, in five years' time, there may be some new brand with gold standard for cleaning interdentally that Melissa and I are talking about then. But at this moment in time, in 2021, so in case you're listening to this in five years' time, right. we're recommending interdental brushes <laughs> over flossing in most cases, but it may change. And, um, you know, I'm excited if it does because that's just something new that we can have. Like, but absolutely keep researching. There's a reason why we have compulsory continuing education because it's important. It's important because I don't want to practice how I graduated. Hell no. Neither do I. (laughs) I can go back and like teach that little girl some things. Oh, poor little thing. Poor, poor patients, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before I started closing every patient, we all know I wasn't cleaning properly. (laughs) Well, same here. And I got to tell you how, because we are just rolling this out. We are about a month and a half in in my practice with doing that protocol on all of our patients now. And the response has been so positive and, you know, we didn't get any more time. We're working on the same parameters of time and we're doing just fine. 
And I have two hygienists who never worked this way before on the team who are 100% in. And it's been great. And um, send, you know, what's powerful to send them home or send them with a link to Amazon to buy their own disclosing tablets and do that at home. That is super helpful for them. So for me, I actually send all my patients home with a packet of disclosing tablets. So they get handed, or if someone's doing really, really well and I'm returning them back to general care, they don't get them. But when they do their first period maintenance appointment with me, usually they need to make some improvement. Yeah. And it's really hard for them to see that at home. Mm-hmm. So I get them to disclose, to, to ask them to do it twice a week. Because the other issue that I found, and Miranda and I actually spoke about this a little bit, um, is that when you start getting a patient to disclose, when when you disclose and they see it, they go, all right, I was missing the change or I was missing this. So when they go home, they start concentrating on that spot and start missing the the rest. Yep, I see that too. If you give them disclosing tablets to use at home, then they don't start a new area. They, They get that and still get their normal areas. But also... It can teach them how to change the angle of the brush or change things because they realize if I keep doing the same thing, it's not changing. But if I change this, it does change. So it really right. helps them. So, yeah, I think sending patients home with home disclosing is a super yeah. important tool and it can really make that difference when they come back again. 100%. So I think we've given you a lot of good little pearls. Hopefully you're you're on board with us and not wanting to kill us because we've just like completely ruined your whole philosophy on home care. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let me tell you, I ruined my own philosophy on home care and I am, I would never go back to how I used to do it. So I hope that you'll join us there on the other side. Um, please send us your comments, your questions, either on Instagram. Um, please keep the reviews coming because we love them so much. Yeah. Remember to subscribe, share with your friends, share on social media, spread the word so we can grow our uh, disrupting crew larger and larger. But, um, you know, we're not even a year in on this podcast and we are just so grateful and humble for uh, the positive responses and how many downloads we've had and the listeners. It's just been such an amazing journey. You've made the labor of love worth every step of the way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, just thank you so much for listening and look out for the next episodes. We've got some really exciting speakers coming up that I'm like excited to chat with. Me too. Um, yeah, keep giving us your suggestions or your questions. We'd really love to hear them and, you know, signing out. (laughs) Yeah. So much love to you all. Keep on disrupting until next time. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we'd love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.